Now, if you didn't pick up a card as you came in and you have a question, if you'd like to ask a question, raise your hand and Walter will give you a card uh, for your use this evening. It is ringing up here just a little bit, uh, but that's okay. I'm sure it will tone down. We're glad to have you here for this midweek service and a special welcome to all of our guests. This is a special edition of the Bible line, as we call it. And so if you have questions, and people often have questions as they approach God's Word, and we want to have a vehicle for you to be able to ask those. And so every Tuesday at 11, you're welcome to call the 843 South Carolina Exchange. It's 843-525-1859 or toll-free at 877. The call letters WAGP980. Or you can email us directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. And when you call in, you can dictate your question or you can go on the air live. We always give preference to dictated and live questions. Now, last week we had a, on Tuesday a ton of questions that had come in. We only got to one that was, uh, that was actually sent in via uh, email because we had so many live callers and people call from it's amazing all the different states and sometimes even foreign countries that they'll email us at. But if you have a question and it's a burning issue and it's important to you, it's important to me. And if I can answer it, by God's grace, I will. And when your question is answered, you will receive an email if you can't listen Tuesdays at 11. And they'll send you an audio link and you can listen to your answer. All right, anyone else need a, a card? We have so many questions already. But if your question is not answered tonight, God willing, will answer it on the Bible line if you leave an email address and you'll get emailed when it's answered. If not, we'll maybe do another night like this. All right, let's uh, bow our heads tonight in prayer. And if you do have a question, just come and leave it on the front basket. It won't distract me. Now, Father, you said study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we come in this hour and we ask that you would help us as we open your word. You told us that while we're equally beloved of you, we're not equally approved by you for the simple reason that we have not dedicated ourselves to learning your word. Thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that we were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And thank you too that it is your word that you use to help us to grow in respect to our salvation. So bless our time tonight and our time around your table as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead. Walter is gonna ask the questions. What's the first one, Walter? All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Jerry out of Bluffton, South Carolina. He says, during two of your recent sermons, you spoke of the New Jerusalem being a city shaped as a cube with a small wall of the city having 12 foundations and on 12 of them, the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. Is, this one, is one of these apostles Judas Iscariot or his replacement, Matthias? All right, turn to Revelation 21 and let's start there if we can. Revelation chapter 21. This is the text of scripture if you were here recently uh, I'm doing a prophetic series. I just completed it. And the last few concerned the New Jerusalem, the place where your loved ones are now. And so in describing that great city that will become the capital of a brand new earth that God is going to create, he says here in verse 12, it had a great and high wall. 
with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. I think it's significant that embossed into God's eternal city are not only the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the 12 names of the apostles. I was on a national radio show I do once a month, and I commented that this is a death blow to covenant theology uh, because God has firmly stated, even in his eternal city, that he chose to use Israel. And so this whole idea that the church has replaced Israel, <laughs> every doubt will be erased as soon as people approach the city and they see the names. But the question at hand concerns the names of the 12 apostles. And so which 12 are there? And the question he asked, what if Judas was on the list? Is that what I heard? Yeah. So go to the book of Acts for a second, Acts chapter 1. Uh, Acts chapter 1. Acts is to the New Testament, really what Genesis is to the Old Testament. It's an important book in helping us to see the first 30 years of church history. And so it's a marvelous picture that God gives us. In Acts 1, um, they're in the upper room, and uh, we're told in verse 15, at that time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Now this man, you'll notice it's parenthetical, so this was not part of what he's saying in the upper room, but Luke, who's the author of Luke and the Acts, is giving a parenthetical note, and here an important note, because many of the readers didn't understand Aramaic, and so he's going to give us a little light here. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakidama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who had accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these might become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So if you remember in Matthew 19, Jesus spoke of, we studied this in the series on prophecy about the regeneration. There's two coming earth, so to speak. There's the one that we're on that's going to be regenerated. 
but then there's another one that's coming that's going to be replaced. And if you remember, I think it's 1928, he said that you guys will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Who's going to be that 12th man? We're told here, Matthias. Some would say, well, what about Paul? He was more prominent than Matthias. Well, Paul, in many ways, apart from maybe John and Peter, was more prominent than all of them. And some people say, well, Matthias, this Matthias is never mentioned again. Well, nor are almost all the other apostles mentioned again. So that's not the criteria. The criteria that God gave is one, they had to have accompanied him from the beginning. And to, of course, to have been an apostle, among other things, you had to have been personally selected by him. So Matthias's name will be on the 12 stones. That's not really a, a, a 12 foundation stones. It's not really a debated question. It's really pretty straightforward. And of course, there's other apostles too. Beyond um, you know, the original 11, there was a false apostle, Judas. Then Matthias, this particular Matthias, takes his place. And then there's Paul. And then there's Barnabas. And then there's James, the half-brother of the Lord. So we, we're talking about at least maybe 15 apostles. Anyway. Good question. Very good question. Right. I don't know if he made it tonight. That one was emailed in to us, I think. Correct. And um, go to the next one. All right. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Della out of Albany, Georgia. She would like to know if there are apostles in the world today. <laughs> there you go. There, there's the answer. It's done. No. Well, you're absolutely right. Go to the book of Ephesians, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm glad you're not in the studio on Tuesdays, brother. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. There's uh, three things that you have to distinguish. There's the office of apostle. There's the gift of apostle. And then there's the duty of someone acting like an apostle. And all three are underscored in the New Testament. First, there's the office of apostle. And so here in Ephesians 2... Uh, we read this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, I'm in verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So, Again, to have been an apostle, among other things, she had to have been chosen by Christ. And so we just read the criteria from Acts 1, that these men were chosen by the Lord. And you read that in the gospel accounts as well. Matthias was chosen from the Lord in an unusual way. They sought the Lord and they drew lots. And by the way, that's the only time in all of Scripture in the New Testament, post-Pentecost, because finding the will of God through lots was not uncommon. But after Pentecost, they never draw lots again. Why? Because we have not only the Word of God, we have the leadership of the Spirit where the Spirit can reign and rule in our hearts and give us a, a sense of direction. That, of course, will always be consistent with the Word. And so not only were you chosen by the Lord, you had to have seen the risen Christ. And Paul, of course, saw the risen Christ. He's a Johnny come lately, but still he met the Lord in the Damascus road. And if those two things were true, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, you'll do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. That's an important verse. In fact, go over there for just a second because the reasoning here is important because there's a growing um, cult 
in Western Europe, but is now reaching American shores uh, that it's called the New Apostolic Movement. And they are arguing that there's a place for 21st century apostles and prophets. And nothing could be further from the truth. And with their claims to be New Testament apostles has come all kinds of false doctrine, contrary to Scripture. But since they are, quote-unquote, apostles, they claim to speak with authority. So if you remember, uh, in the Corinthian church, there were some false teachers who had come in. They disguised themselves, Paul will say, in the 11th chapter, as apostles of Christ, but they weren't really. And he said, but we shouldn't be surprised because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and so don't his ministers. But Paul then argues, no, I am a true apostle. In one of his arguments in verse 12 of chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, if everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul did, then it's a meaningless argument. Paul said, you know I'm a real apostle because I have the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a true apostle could do. So there is the office of apostle, which is foundational. The church was built on that. The church has been founded. But then there's a gift of apostleship. If you look over in Ephesians 4, uh, this is one of four major passages in the New Testament that address the subject of gifts. They're easy to remember, two fours, two twelves. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, really through chapter 14. Spiritual gifts are spoken of throughout the New Testament, but those are the four central passages. And so here in Ephesians 4, he has spoken how Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, and in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And actually, the last on the list is one gift. He uses a different word, and. Apostles, and, chi, and, chi, and, chi. And then he links the word pastor, teacher. And so it's almost like pastor slash teacher. Now, there is a gift of teaching. There's a gift of pastoring. And there's a gift of pastor, teacher. But these are leadership gifts in the local church. For what reason? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So if you go by a church, and it says on the sign, apostles so-and-so, you should probably be suspect, because he may be using that term in terms of like an office. And we just read that what Judas did when they quoted the Psalms, someone has to take his office. But then there's this gift of apostleship. And the word apostoloi means, and the apostolos means a sent one. And so someone with the gift of apostleship today is someone who is sent. They typically start ministries, find ministries, and then move on. Many a missionary is someone called with that gift. They're satisfied when an indigenous church, say, in a foreign culture is established, and then they're ready to move on. And then if you turn over another few pages to Philippians, look in Philippians chapter 2. He 
here it is, start in verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. He's talking about this brother Epaphroditus. As soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is your messenger and minister to my need. Now, you see that word messenger? If you have the New American Standard with footnotes, what's, what's before it? Little one. You see that little number one? So that's important. When, when the New American Standard puts footnotes within a verse, it's because usually say there's a play on words in the Greek text, or they want to give you maybe a little more literal reading um, that maybe doesn't communicate as well in the receptor language for us English. But if you go out in the margin, what does it say? Literally, apostle. So Epaphroditus is called an apostle. And in this case, he's a sent one. It's just like the word deacon. There's a formal use of the word deacon. And so in 1 Timothy uh, 3, he gives the qualifications for a deacon. But then Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be, we say servant. The Greek text says, he that is great among you must be the deacon of all. And actually, in most languages, they use the same word in that verse as they would use in 1 Timothy 3. And they assume the reader contextually can discern what's the usage of the word, say, diaconus in that case. So apostle, there are no people in the office of apostle. It's foundational. It's over. That's not to say that God couldn't do a miracle today, but God is doing zero miracles through individuals like he did through the apostles. Benny Hinn, all these guys are scam artists. And Costi Hen, who worked, his nephew, who worked for him for over a decade, after a decade, he was converted, not through his uncle's ministry. And then he unfolded, and he's good, close friends with my son-in-law. He unfolded all the evil and horrible things that that ministry has done. And so, yes, the evil one can even replicate miracles. Jesus told us that will be predominant during the time of the tribulation. But every miracle is not done by God. But these miracles were done through individuals that were unique to an apostle or in a few rare cases, an apostolic delegate. All right, I hope that answers it. Um, let's go to the next question. All right. <clears throat> question three says, what do you say and how do you witness to the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons when they come to your door? Hmm. Well, they don't usually come to my door anymore because I think <laughs> I'm on their map. You know, don't go here. We could lose a convert. Um, just a couple things. Um, Mormons, of course, let's just be clear because they're trying to uh, snuggle up with evangelicals. And sadly and foolishly, some evangelicals have joined hands with them when the scripture specifically addresses in Romans 16 and other passages that we are to separate from those who teach false doctrine. Every major doctrine of the faith they deny, the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, meaning salvation by grace alone through faith alone, a literal hell that men will spend an eternity in, uh, on and on, all the major, the inerrancy of the scripture. And so when push comes to shove, when they show up at your door, they technically have several books. They have the Holy Bible, 
They have the Book of Mormon that has 15 books within it. And so when we speak of the Book of Mormon, just like we speak of the Biblia, it's plural books, Bible, it's actually plural. We have 66. They have 15 books. And, um, and then they have the Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines and Covenants. So four books. When, they'll carry the Bible with them because, again, as you would think, they want to portray themselves as believers, but they're not. But when push comes to shove, they will tell you the Bible has been corrupted. And that the only book that can be trusted is the Book of Mormon. Well, they fail to tell you that there have been over 3,500 changes in the Book of Mormon since the 1830, whatever it was, edition. In fact, Dr. Walter Martin, he did a classic work called The Kingdom of the Cults. And he covers Mormonism well there. He was a thorn in their side because through his ministry, many Mormons were converted. And one of the things that he does so well in that book, you can pick it up probably for $2 plus shipping because it's been around for 50 years. But he quotes their actual documents that helps you to see what they, the scriptures say. For instance, we had some Mormons who came one night to meet the pastor. And God, in his protective way, brought four Mormon missionaries to meet the pastor and no one else. He knew that we didn't need anyone else there that night. And so it was a good discussion. And I said to him, well, look, the Bible and the Book of Mormon both can't be true. I said, turn to Alma 7 and verse 10. Where does it say Jesus was born? He was born in Jerusalem. Well, the prophet Micah said that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And the New Testament records that the birth of the Messiah was in Bethlehem. So either the Bible is true or the Book of Mormon is true, but let's be clear, they both can't be true. And again, they'll sit back and say it's been corrupted. In fact, the passage we opened up with in Acts chapter 1 is a classic text that every Mormon missionary is trained in that when they show up at your door and they want to confuse you, they'll say, well, over here in Matthew's account, it said that Judas hung himself. And over here in Acts, it said he fell headlong and his bowels gushed open. A contradiction. It's no contradiction at all. Luke is just giving us in the Acts all the juicy details. <laughs> Either the, 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 the rope broke or the knot slipped or the tree limb snapped. In fact, it, it appears just because typically if a body falls headlong, it's not going to burst open. But if he had been there even for 24 hours, his body would have been bloated. And then if he fell forward through a broken limb or whatever, yes, he would have popped. And so there are no contradictions in the scripture, only compliments. But they have over 3,000 changes. And I'm not talking about language updates. Because you could take, say, the 1611 King James Bible, which when people say, I believe in the 1611, the Old King James, they're actually not even reading the 1611. What we call today the Old King James translation is a 1638 translation. And there have been actually five revisions since the 1611. Why? Because the English language was changing so fast. In fact, there's over 100,000 changes by the fifth revision before they came out with the new King James in the 1980. Why? Because the English language was changing so much. 
God's word is static. It never changes. But sometimes words that we use in English do change. So when my dad was a Boy Scout, he was born in 1923, his pledge was, I promise to be square. When I was a Boy Scout in the 1960s, the pledge was, I promise to be morally pure. And so the word square carried a different meaning. In fact, it became almost an IE square, you know, years later. And so a good translation asks, what's the best word today that would translate that Greek, that Hebrew, that Aramaic word? But the Mormon Bible has literally made changes. And so they had a new revelation in 1978. Because before that, you see, black people weren't welcome in the Mormon church. They couldn't be a part of the priesthood. You talk about a racist organization. They were racist to its core. And then they had a new revelation on polygamy. Why? Because the U.S. government was bothering them so much. Though polyandry has been passed in Massachusetts and one in Somerville, so you can, I won't even go there. So we may not be far from polygamy being fully reinstated in, the, in this country. But they're changing with the culture to bend, to be accepted, to make themselves presentable to people. But they're a cult. But let me say this about Mormons. Two pe people are in a cult for one of two reasons. Either that cult was the first one to reach them, and they were really looking and searching, or they've heard the truth and they've rejected the truth. And if you reject the truth, then you open yourself up to believe a lie. And that's where many of them are, but there are good searching Mormons. I have a collection of Mormon Bibles in my office. And when I have been privileged to lead a handful of Mormons to Christ, I'll say, I'll tell you what, I'll take your Mormon Bible, if you'll, and they gladly yield it. And I have some New World Translation scriptures that are done by the Jehovah's Witness. Now, whoever did the New World Translation didn't know any Greek or Hebrew. If you were a starch atheist, you knew that it would be impossible to translate John 1.1 the way they translated it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, then the Word became flesh. Well, they say in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. It's impossible. You could be an atheist and you would know that you cannot translate the text that way. But they manipulated it, but they missed some verses. So I would say a couple things. First, with Mormons, because of their perfectionist emphasis, most of them are discouraged with themselves. And they don't meet up to the standards. And I would address that. I would say, well, you know what? You not only don't meet up to the standards of the Mormon church, you don't meet up to God's standards. In fact, I don't either, and no one does. And unless we are gifted with a righteousness we cannot achieve, and for some people that's like fresh air, and God uses that to bring them into the kingdom. Because I'll often ask them, I'll say, well, you know, well, what do you think the Bible teaches? This Bible that you say has been corrupted, what do you think it teaches is how you get into heaven? And they'll give the answer of the Book of Mormon, works. And then I'll open the scripture and we'll look at some passages that were saved by grace alone through faith alone. And I'll say, hey, just possible, if you were wrong on this, because this is a book about salvation, on the central message of the Bible, maybe you could be wrong on some other things. And so you're planning 
some seeds to get them to think. Jehovah's Witness, they're a little different and that they are highly trained. And so they meet up here on Thursday nights. In the South, it's largely African-American. In the North, it's almost all white. And, um, but they are trained. They ask this question, you give this answer. They make this statement, you give this answer. And so when you're talking to them, they're not really listening. They're getting prepared to pull out their revolver and shoot their answer at you. And a Jehovah's Witness told me this in college. He was converted, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Carl, if you have an opportunity to witness to one of us, he said, you make an agreement. I will listen to you for 10 minutes uninterrupted if you will listen to me for 10 minutes uninterrupted. And that kind of gives, I think, the Spirit of God an atmosphere in which he might work. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, question four. What does it mean to build the prophet's tomb in Luke chapter 11, verse 48? Okay, let's go to Luke. Luke's gospel. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer because he wrote Luke and Acts, and those two books combined are longer than all of the letters that Paul wrote. Luke and... Um, So in Luke 11, he's given this series of woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And if you look at verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him and replied, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too, as if Jesus really cared. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. You know, lawyers and scribes, same office, two titles. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your father, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So what they were doing is they were honoring, and I have it in quotes in Jesus' teaching here, the prophets of old. They rebuilt the old tombs. I think in Matthew's account, it also added they, they decorated the tombs. Now, if you go to Jerusalem, we don't always point it out, depending on where the bus is going and everything else, but if you're, uh, there's a road that's right above the Kidron Valley, and as you look down, there's some really famous tombs. There's Absalom's tomb, and there's the prophet Zechariah's tomb. Uh, there's Isaiah's tomb over here, and, uh, but, but uh, Zechariah's tomb and Absalom's tomb have a first century rebuild. It has all the characteristics and even the lettering from a first century Jewish people. And so that's, they took an old tomb and because they were wanting to supposedly honor these men, they fixed their tombs up. And so this was going on in Jesus' day and you can see some of those very tombs that Jesus is speaking of. And his point is, is that you guys are fakes and phonies because you build the tombs of the prophets, but it was your fathers who killed them. 
And if you read the Old Testament, God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And they treat them like dirt. Instead of listening to them, they slaughter and murder and imprison them and do all kinds of things to them. So then he goes on and says, so you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Think about what's going on. He has already sent a major forerunner of the prophet of prophets. Who's the prophet of prophets? Jesus. Say it with some conviction. Jesus, right? So he fills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. So he's not just a prophet, but he is a prophet. He is a king. He is a priest, according to a new order. And so the forerunner of the prophet that Moses spoke about, remember Deuteronomy 18, 18? There's a prophet who's coming, who's going to be in some ways like me, but he's going to be in a class all of his own, to paraphrase the verse. And of course, the Messiah is going to have a forerunner, as Isaiah and Malachi both prophesied. That forerunner was John. What did they do with John? They gave him nothing but trouble. And what did they do with Jesus? They hated him as well. I'm talking about not every single religious man, but for the most part, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, and the Herodians. They opposed the Lord Jesus. And so he's basically saying, you're doing the exact same thing your fathers did. In fact, when he sends the apostles they hammer them as well. And so what does he do? He says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Who's the very first prophet in the Bible? You don't know from the Old Testament. We learn that from the New Testament. It's Abel. How do we know that? Because Jesus gives us divine commentary. And why is that significant? Because if you go over to Acts chapter 10 for a moment, Acts 10, don't lose Luke here. Acts 10, um, he is uh, uh, preaching to Cornelius in his house. And in verse 42, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through him, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, sometimes people will paint like Old Testament believers as being basically stupid, and they didn't really know that much, but they knew a tremendous amount. In fact, what he is saying here, obviously, we have fuller revelation they do. We have the whole Bible. But remember, for nearly a decade, the early church had one book that they used, the Tanakh, that's what Jews call the Old Testament, Tanakh. It's an abbreviation for Torah, the first five books, and the Nephi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. That's how they divide their Bible into those three parts. And so all they had for nearly 10 years was the Old Testament scriptures. So when they stood up on the Lord's Day, what did they preach? The Old Testament scriptures. And if they had an apostle in new revelation, they could hear the apostles' teaching. And so, but my point is, is that all the prophets bore witness of Jesus. Abel preached Jesus by the very nature of the sacrifice he offered. People say, well, you know, Cain gave less than best, and, and Abel, you know, uh, he, 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 he gave his best. 
That's not the nature between the two sacrifices. Cain went against what God had revealed. How do I know that? Because in Hebrews 11, it says, Abel acted in faith. What's faith based on? Faith comes from hearing hearing by the word of God. So Abel responded in faith to revealed revelation. What had God revealed? No doubt through Adam and Eve when they put fig leaves to cover their shame, God gave them coats of skin and he established a principle that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so one went on the basis of what God had revealed. The other went on his own reasoning. And so back here in Luke, he said, from the blood of Abel, he's the first prophet, to the blood of Zechariah. And in the parallel account, this Zechariah is identified as the same one that we call the prophet Zechariah, that incredible prophecy. And if you um, read our English Bibles, it comes at the end of the Bible. And so from the first prophet, to the last prophet, he's indicting them with their blood. Why? Because you are doing the same thing your fathers did. And now you don't have just any ordinary prophet, you have the prophet of prophets. So God is holding you guilty for the whole bunch. Pretty serious charge. All right. All right. Question five, Pastor Carl. Who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? Okay, um, do I have an answer out there? <laughs> go to the book of Hebrews, go to chapter 13, Hebrews 13 for just a moment. Um, while we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, we know that the first century readers knew who wrote the book of Hebrews. I did a um, paper in seminary, I had two courses. One was called um, uh, Acts and General Epistles. And then I took a uh, elective course in the book of Hebrews. And so in the Acts General Epistles course that Dr. Toussaint was teaching, you could write an argument, among other things, on any of the general epistles. So I chose to write an, an argument. Is, um, uh, it's just a theological term if you're not familiar with it. it. You're basically showing how a book fits together. What's the flow of thought through a book? So I wrote an 80-page paper on the book of Hebrews for the simple reason that in the Hebrews class, the assignment was to write an argument for the book of Hebrews. So I used it for both courses. <laughs> and so when Dr. Toussaint came here to Community Bible Church to preach from this pulpit, this was the room we originally met in for our worship services. This was our first building. And I would preach in here three times on Sunday morning. There was only an aisle there, an aisle there. The rest was solid seats. We had 803 seats. I mean, they were just like right there. And um, I said, now, Dr. Toussaint, Dr. Pentecost gave me an A plus, and you gave me an A minus. <laughs> I was just playing with him. Anyway, here, here in Hebrews 13, and look at verse... Uh, um, 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Pray for us. So what's the assumption? They know who the us is. So the first century readers knew who the us was. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? Some would say, well, uh, Peter or Luke, or some have said the mother of Mary or uh, Aquila or well, number one, we know it was not a woman. In fact, there's not a single woman who writes a single book in all the Bible. 
That's not to dismiss womanhood. And so you don't want to miss the next three messages on Sunday morning because the fan is getting ready to splatter when uh, Rick uh, of Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, is going to contest whether or not women can be pastors. And this is an important issue in our day. But there's masculine pronouns that are used here in Hebrews that indicate it's a male writer. So who wrote it? There was an edition of the King James Bible. I actually have a copy in my library. And it was done in, I think, 1910. And it was printed in, uh, it was called the Cambridge Edition. And when you open up the book of Hebrews, it says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Now, as far as I know, that's the only edition that ever did that. Other King James editions did not do that. But remember, the book titles are no more inspired than chapter and verse divisions are. And so, for instance, in our English Bible, the first five books of the Bible, we borrow the names from the Septuagint. In the Hebrew Bible, they borrow the titles from the very first word or words in each of those books. That's okay. Why do we have book titles? So we can find our way around. And, we can, and that's why we have chapter and verse divisions where we'd be flipping here all night trying to locate a text. We do know who didn't write it, though. We know an apostle didn't write it. So go to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. It's impossible to say an apostle wrote this. An apostle did not write this. And we know that from the wording here in Hebrews 2. Um, look, if you will, in verse, um, the end of verse, well, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is one of um, five, maybe six, depending on how you count, warning passages in the book of Hebrews. It does not say, how shall we escape if we reject so great a salvation? But if we neglect so great a salvation, this is a warning not to unbelievers threatening them. Like the other warning passages, these are written to Christians. And these are serious warnings. So he says, uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it, the salvation, was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both signs and wonders, and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's a progression of thought. He's speaking about it, this great salvation, that was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who heard? The apostles. And how do we know that they were God's men? God testified with them. How? By signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Same thing we just read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I'm a true apostle. How do you know? I have the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. So, number one, it was uh, not some of the other suggestions like Barnabas or Luke or uh, all the other names that have been given. It was an apostle. Was it Paul? I think not. Why not? While it's logical in many ways like Paul, Paul has his own vocabulary. Remember, when God inspired the scripture, without, with the exception of a few portions that were dictated, God moved those men along by the Holy Spirit, and God wrote the very words through their personality. And so Luke, who's a physician, who gives us two books, uses a lot of, uses a lot of medical terms in his books. 
because that's who he is. And John, he writes with the simplest English, the first book you have to read, or I don't know if it's still true, but at Dallas Seminary, we had to read the Greek New Testament in the Gospel of John. Why John to start? Because that was the simplest Greek in all of the New Testament, but with one of the most profound styles by the things he says and the way he says them. They're just like, they blow your mind. None of this is Pauline. It has none of the marks of Paul's vocabulary or writing style. And so virtually no one in the history of the church believed Paul wrote this. It's not until that edition of the King James Bible came out that it became a, a rumor in evangelicalism. By the time Origen comes on the scene, like, I think he died like 255. He said, no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews but God alone. And I think that's interesting that God in this particular book would not let us know because if you know the book of Hebrews, it deals with the superiority of Christ. It deals with uh, his worth and the early chapters, his work and our walk. And he shows how Christ is supreme over all the Old Testament teachers and priests and all that they did. And this is an important argument in Hebrews for the simple reason that remember, these are Jewish people, Hebrews, right? Where is the, oh, I won't go to that joke about coffee in the Bible. Um, these are Hebrews, Jewish Christians, who of course were being persecuted. So what did they do? They say, well, we'll make ourselves look more Jewish. So they went back to temple worship. And Paul said to go back to temple worship is to engage in shadows and things that were foreshadowed and fulfilled in Christ. And it is, in essence, a denial of the preciousness of what Christ accomplished. It's a terrible witness, which brought some of them under severe discipline. So, um, anyway, I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Nobody else does, so. All right. Question six. I've been going through your series on Jonah. It seems like Jonah ends with him in bitterness. What are the clues that we have that Jonah actually learned through his experience? All right, go to the book of Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, a, a, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. All right, Jonah. So I did a whole series on Jonah, and it might be worth, if you get a chance, listening to it. But this person obviously hasn't gotten to the end of the series because I addressed this in the very last sermon. So who wrote the book of Jonah? We know who wrote it because it's given in the front verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah writes the book of Jonah. No one has ever disputed that. It's always been embraced by Jews and Christians alike. But notice how the book ends. Of course, he's sitting there moping and he's lost perspective and God said to Jonah, do you have good reason in verse nine to be angry about the plant? Remember, he had this beautiful plant that God supernaturally grew and a worm came and shrunk it and he lost his shade. And he said, I've got good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have had compassion on Nineveh the great city on which there are 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and left hand. He's talking about Christ, uh, children. 
they don't know the difference between their right and left hands. There's 600,000 people in the city, conservatively, based on all the archaeological records that we have. And, and the Babylonian cuneiform and other things is astounding in terms of the records that they have. And there's 120,000 kids. And he says, look, there's 120,000 kids in the city. You just want me to destroy the place. Forget all the animals that are there. Does God have compassion on the animals? He does. Proverbs, what, 1210? I always remember that because my parents were married on December the 10th, 1950. And my dad always had compassion on animals. Uh, and so, nonetheless, uh, a righteous man has compassion on animals. So here's Jonah, and what's your problem, Jonah? Did he get over it? Of course he did. How do you know? He wrote the book of Jonah. Does God use a rebellious, disobedient person to write Scripture? Not at all. These men were moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Jonah got his heart right. And he had enough spiritual strength on the inside to record his failures for people to read for centuries to come. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. One, one more, Pastor Carl. All right. Uh, final question. How does someone know for sure that heaven is their forever home? Critical question. That's the most important question we will ever ask and answer on this side of, of life. And so if you have uncertainty, come to my next Meet the Pastor. If you have uncertainty, go home tonight. Go to communitybiblechurch.us or wagp.net or searchthescriptures.org. On the homepage of all three of those websites, there's a presentation, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? Listen to it, but the short answer is we're sinners, we are separated from God. Our sin deserves death. There are two reasons, contrary to popular opinion, that good works cannot save you. Good works cannot remove the stain of sin. It's our iniquity that has made a separation between us and our God. Number two, good works cannot satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. The soul that sins must die. And so God says the penalty is death. And you say, I'll keep the golden rule. Fantastic. The penalty is death. I'll get baptized. Fantastic. The penalty is death. Nothing you can do can meet God's just requirements. And so the God who set the penalty paid the penalty by becoming a man in Christ as a sinless person who didn't deserve death could die in your place. How do we know he's sinless? When on the third day, God raised him from the dead. Death could not capture him. We sang that. Death could not hold him in that grave because he was the sinless son of God. And he shouts from the cross to tell us die. In 1961, in the city of Jerusalem, they dug up a first century tax collector's office. And much like in Qumran, where they found all these ancient pieces of papyri, they found some tax collector scrolls. And on it were lists of names. And when your tax was paid next to your name, they wrote to tell us die. It's finished. It's paid in full, which is why Galatians says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died for no reason. But he died for a reason, to make a full eternal payment. And that's what we'll celebrate at this table this evening. So call upon him, but call upon him in faith. 
because you must take him at his word. God, because he did what he did, can promise what he promises that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And it's a quotation from the prophet Joel, the second chapter in the English Bible, the third chapter in my Hebrew Bible. He's talking about the Messiah. And he says, concerning the Messiah, you call on his name and God will save you. Paul takes that quotation in Romans 10 and he applies it to the one who fulfilled that prophecy, Jesus. You call on his name and he'll immediately save you. And so then it is an issue of whether or not you'll believe what God said. If when you call upon him, I'm not sure I'm saved, then you're doing one of two things. You're either saying God is weak and he's unable to save the worst of sinners. Or you're saying, God, you can't do what you said or you won't do what you said. And then that's like calling God a liar. Now it's one thing if we don't know what the gospel is, but once we know what the gospel is, we are responsible and we'll have no excuse because the God who set the penalty paid it. Our Father, we thank you tonight that we've had a few moments to pause and to study and to open your word. I pray for someone who's here tonight who is uncertain of their salvation, that tonight would be a turning point. You said today is the day of salvation. Thank you that whosoever will may come that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We thank you, our Father, that a complete and eternal payment has been done on the cross there at Golgotha, and you declared to all men everywhere that he is Lord when you raised him from the dead. So help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us, Father, in this day of incredible distraction where everything vies for our attention but your word. The very tool that you use to bring conversion, the very tool that you use to grow your people. Help us to focus on it, to learn it as best we are able, that we might be workmen approved of you, rightly handling the word of truth. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We'll come now to the Lord's table, and if you know the Lord Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate. And so we'll hold the bread together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. The Bible says when we participate in the eating of the bread, then a man should examine himself. And that simply means make sure there's no unconfessed sin in your heart. You don't have to look for hidden sin. You know if you've sinned because the spirit is grieved. And when he's grieved, we are to confess that sin and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. And thank God for the cleansing of the cross. Christians sin. And so the Lord told us to remember him at this table and to remember the great price that has been paid unlike the Hebrews that we read tonight who were neglecting that great price. We are not to neglect it. We are to acknowledge that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price to glorify God in our body. Father, thank you tonight for the bread, a picture of the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished for us. Examine our hearts, O Lord. See if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. And after they had eaten of the bread, the Lord Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is given for many for the forgiveness of sins. Rivers of blood all the way through the Old Testament. Adam's sins, the first death in all the universe takes place as God kills multiple animals to give them coats of skins. Abel brings a blood sacrifice. Noah sacrifices using blood. God sends Moses and he dictates through the law after they had seen the blood of the lamb at the Passovers, of all these sacrifices and rivers of blood that run all the way through the Old Testament. But now the New Testament, the new covenant, has been enacted, a once and for all payment that allows us to, one, be eternally secure, and secondly, to be cleansed when there's failure. And so it is not a cheap price, it is a high price. And we are never to dismiss that. So as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Even so, come Lord Jesus.